0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: G'day, it's Tom Switzer here from ABC's Radio National and it's great to have your company here on Between the Lines. Today, a special anniversary, John Howard on the 25th anniversary of his election victory. Well, 25 years ago, March 2, 1996,
0: We have been elected with a mandate. We have not been elected to be just a pale imitation of the government that we have replaced.
1: Now, from 1983 to 1996, the Coalition had been in political wilderness, 13 years under the Labor governments of Prime Ministers Bob Hawke and Paul Keating. And during that time, John Howard had been Shadow Treasurer, Opposition Leader a backbencher, a shadow minister, and then party leader again. At various stages, the press had written off Howard countless times. In 1988, for instance, Australia's then-leading magazine, The Bulletin, described the unpopular opposition leader as, quote, Mr 18% and asked the insulting question, why does this man bother? (laughs) The critics, both inside and outside the Liberal Party, all too often derided him as yesterday's man. And on several occasions, John Howard himself seemed resigned to his fate. He once said his chances of a comeback were like Lazarus with a triple bypass. So, March 2, 1996, represents one of the greatest political comebacks in modern history. How did Howard do it? Why was this election so significant? And what defines the Howard legacy? John Howard was elected to federal parliament in 1974, where he served for 33 years before losing power in 2007. He was our nation's second longest serving prime minister from early March 1996 to late November 2007. That's nearly 12 years in full. John Howard, welcome back to Radio National. Very
2: nice to be with you, Tom.
1: I said you're the second longest serving PM. You're also Australia's second oldest prime minister.
2: That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Menzies pipped me on both scores.
1: T- uh, t- ten years younger than the 78-year-old Joe Biden.
2: Uh, that's right, and uh, of <laughs> course, yes. well, um, maybe people live longer these days. <laughs> uh, I think it's um, it was just a consequence of a number of things. I've been, I was blessed with reasonably good health, uh, and that helped. And I, I think that um, attitudes to age are. A lot more neutral now than they might have been 30 or 40 years ago.
1: Yeah, but if you go back to the mid 60s, the then Prime Minister, Robert Menzies, his deputy, John McEwen, the opposition leader at the time, uh, Arthur Corwell, they were in their early 70s. Now, the average male life expectancy has increased by more than five years since then. So, do we discriminate against the elderly?
2: I don't think we do consciously, but, and I think these things go in cycles. Mm. Uh, I mean, America now has a lot of very old people, quite old people in leading positions. Go back to the Kennedy years. Mm. Uh, I mean, John Kennedy uh, was 42, 41 when he became president. Uh, Sadly, uh, he was assassinated at the age of 45.
1: Yeah, but you could be in your 90s and be on the US Supreme Court, but when judges in this country turn 70, they're deemed officially senile and forced to retire. That's discrimination, isn't it? Uh,
2: Well... I think in retrospect, it was a mistake to set the retiring age at 70. I think what should have been put in the referendum, mind you, this is a constitutional thing. Mm. What should have been put in the referendum, and I say this in retrospect, was that the retiring age will be 70 or such other age as Parliament might from time to time fix. That change was made because a number of federal judges insisted on staying well beyond their, how shall I put it, gently more capable ages.
1: Well, we've had plenty of guests on this program in their 70s and 80s, and they're just as sharp and smart as anyone my age or younger. Now, let's go back to March 1996. John Howard, were you surprised by the extent of your victory?
2: Yes, I was. I'd I'd become very nervous about even winning, even though we ran a good campaign, the polls were good. The Liberal Party had had so many setbacks and reverses, and I'd had a number at a personal level, politically as well. So the sheer size of the majority, which grew and grew as the counting progressed, uh, surprised me.
1: You mentioned your own political setbacks. Many people, including Liberals, wrote your political obituary in the late 1980s when you lost the leadership to Andrew Peacock. Your own colleague, John Moore, told Brisbane's Courier-Mail, this is September 1989, that you should, quote, fade away like a ghost, Quote, ghosts are pretty irrelevant, and I would have thought in this case, ghosts have no substance. John Howard.
2: Well, you know, it's easy when you finally make it to sort of look back on those things and not be particularly concerned about them. But I guess you could dig things up like that about any politician who at various stages has been written off. But I remember all of that, uh, generally speaking. Not that particular quote, but I I might make the point that when I did become prime minister in 96, I included John Moore uh, in the cabinet as industry minister, and he was a very good industry minister because he brought to the cabinet a very good business understanding. And
1: eventually defence minister during the East Timor expedition?
2: He was eventually defence minister. He was a very good minister, and, and he also understood many aspects of Queensland politics.
1: Indeed, John Moore, of course, was one of only two cabinet ministers from the Fraser era, the other one being you, because you were treasurer. How did you bounce back after being widely ridiculed by so many people, including by your own side? Was it the family? Was it the way you were raised? What what was it about your sheer Well, it was a
2: combination of all of those things. I mean, my family was absolutely magnificent. Uh, I had some very close friends. But I was also driven by a belief in policy change. There were certain things I wanted uh, to achieve in politics. And some of the most rewarding years I had in politics were those I had in the early 90s when I was the opposition spokesman on industrial relations. I felt that the debate that took place at that time over industrial relations was very significant, and that I was actually able to shift the debate. Uh, and, And that's the most rewarding thing to do. And I've... Remember, over the years, I've said to people who've come to talk to me about, oh, look, I'm I'm not going to get any further. I think I might as well get out. I said, if you're interested in a policy issue, uh, it can be very rewarding, even though you're in opposition. That was my experience. And that was one of the things that kept me going. And I also had at the back of my mind that maybe the party might one day uh, think I could be a leader again. Uh, I wasn't sure that was going to happen. But... While you're there, Mm. there's always the possibility. So this is the
1: period from roughly May 1989 when you lost the leadership Mm. right through to early 1995 when you regained it. You bled a while, a bit like Robert Menzies after he lost the leadership. I did, I did. But Mm.
2: one of the things that I've uh, found very helpful at the time was I was given the opportunity of writing a, a weekly column in The Australian and I was able to talk about anything, and I enjoyed that experience.
1: Under the editor, Frank Devine. Now, March 1996, a new term entered the Australian political lexicon, Howard Battler. How did you appeal to many traditional Labor voters in 1996 and thereafter?
2: Well, I think many of the attitudes I took on uh, what I might call Australian nationalism, uh, the, the average Australian, if I can use that expression... Uh, believed very much in this country and they wanted uh, a a Prime Minister who asserted traditional Australian values, not only the values of a fair go, that Australia was a distinctive, independent country. And one of the things I set out to do as Prime Minister uh, was to re-establish balance in our foreign relations. It was very important that we be close to the nations of Asia, but we shouldn't achieve that closeness at the expense of our relations with traditional allies. And uh, I think that was something that was appealing. And I think also my uh, style, I I wasn't seen uh, as an ultra-establishment figure, not that I denigrate in in any way what might loosely be called the establishment. I believed in and always have believed in capitalism. I believe that people are entitled to, to work hard and make a lot of money providing they do it honestly and they pay their fair share of tax Uh, I don't believe in class. I think one of the reasons the Liberal Party did so well under Scott Morrison in 2019 is that their opponents ran essentially a class-based campaign, and Australians don't really like
1: that. Okay, well, let's let's hear from your critics. This is how the journalist uh, George Megalogenes, uh, the Labor speechwriter Don Watson, and the Liberal historian uh, Judith Brett, uh, this is how they explained your victory in 1996.
0: Australia in 1996 was five years out of recession but to most voters it still felt like a recession. Each time Paul Keating talked about Mabo or he talked about the Republic or he talked about our place in Asia people thought that he'd forgotten their kitchen table concerns. Those who could afford to have the broader view, if you like, of Australia um, loved Keating for his vision. Those whose lives were more necessitous needed more persuading than we were able to deliver to them. What he did was to position Keating in particular as a representative of the elites, wearing Italian suits, interested in opera, not being a sort of an ordinary Aussie bloke going to the sport, talking around the barbecue.
1: That was historian Judith Brett. Before that, George Megalogenis and Don Watson, who was a speechwriter to uh, Paul Keating. Uh, John Howard, fair points.
2: Uh, some of it is fair. I, I don't agree with Judith Beth about the Italian suits in the opera. No, I, think it's, I don't think I've ever <laughs> mentioned that. He's entitled to dress well like anybody and go to the opera. I've, I've been to the opera plenty of times. Now, I don't, I don't think that's, that, that's a fair, but I thought the point uh, George Megalogenis made was, was fair. Uh, pe- people got aggravated by an emphasis on things that didn't touch their daily mm. lives. Now, there's a place for all of those things, And there's a place in our society for a debate about whether you have a republic or a monarchy. Keating and I had different views on that. But uh, the truth is that there was a sense that the concerns of many people uh, had been ignored. But that always happens, of course, when a government loses its appeal and is voted out.
1: My sense is that a lot of your critics from that era couldn't quite come to grips with the fact that you won over key segments of the blue-collar vote to the conservative cause.
2: Well, I don't think that they could come to terms with that, but they also couldn't come to terms with the fact that i actually won yeah. a few <laughs> elections. <laughs> I mean, there was a sense through the first, my first term that was an illegitimate victory, even though I had a 44-seat majority in a parliament of 150, which was an extraordinary majority. There was a sense that it was just uh, an aberration and the public would come to its senses and return to the natural order. Well, of course, that did not happen. And the reason it did not happen is that many people who'd hitherto voted Labor all their life uh, decided that the economy was running better under us. They thought we had a more balanced view to our relations with the rest of the world and they were happy to support us.
1: And this is what she said on election night, March 2, 1996.
0: It has been a win that has not just reclaimed those who voted liberal in the past and those who are by habit swing voters, but it is a victory that has also embraced many traditional Labor Party areas of Australia. And when you look at the swings in Western Sydney and in some of the traditional Labor areas of Sydney, i think of the magnificent result in queensland and that wonderful result in south australia and the way in which the liberal party held its very high proportion of seats in victoria and the early returns in western australia are very encouraging it is a comprehensive endorsement of the philosophy and the approach of the liberal party and to all of you
1: now the political trend you tapped into 25 years ago I think it's fair to say it's become something of a global phenomenon. In 2019, Boris Johnson's Conservatives smashed Labour's so-called red wall of working-class constituencies. This was across the Midlands and the north of England. You see the same thing happening in Britain? To
2: some extent, yes, but Margaret Thatcher attracted a lot of blue-collar voters.
1: Yeah, although some of those areas that Boris won had not voted Tory since the 20s and 30s. No,
2: but of course the Labor Party in... 2019 was led by Corbyn who was appallingly unsuited for that job and traditional patriotic working class Brits in the north of England could not identify with Jeremy Corbyn, particularly his passive views on anti-Semitism, on the IRA and the like. They just regarded him as wholly unsuitable. And that,
1: that allowed the Tories to smash that red wall. However, in wealthy metropolitan constituencies that voted remain in the Brexit referendum, the conservative vote fell in 2019.
2: Yeah, I, that's, that's true. Uh, it, it's important with these comparisons not to overdo them. Mm. And obviously there's a lot in common with politics in Australia and Britain and the United States because it's different. Class is not an issue in Australia to the extent it still is in Britain and in the United Mm. States the gulf between rich and poor is much greater than it is in Australia. The, The great thing about Australian society is that it is essentially still predominantly a middle-class society and that's something that we have to hang on to for dear life because it's a very precious asset. It keeps us together and keeps us cohesive.
1: But there has been splintering of the right, certainly abroad. We mentioned Brexit. That exposed real splits among the Tories. Donald Trump in the United States, of course, has bitterly divided Republicans. Now, you dealt with Hansenism in One Nation, uh, especially during the first part of your prime ministership. Do you think Craig Kelly's defection from the Liberal Party this week could that represent a trumpian split on Australia's centre right? John Howard.
2: No, I don't think so. I think that's uh, over dramatizing it. I'm sorry he's no longer a member of the Liberal Party. Uh, I don't agree with many of his views on the pandemic, but he's entitled mm. to have them. I don't agree with them. I I think it's over, uh, you know, over dramatizing the significance of it.
1: Greg Sheridan this week in The Australian says that, sure, mavericks have resigned from political parties before, but Craig Kelly has gone down a particularly Trumpist road in a particularly Trumpist fashion. Sheridan says this is a much bigger threat to centre-right politics in Australia than it may first appear.
2: Look, I um, (laughs) admire Greg Sheridan a lot and I agree with many of the things that he writes particularly on foreign affairs, but I don't agree with him on that. Okay, issue.
1: how does how do today's centre-right parties win over those traditional Labor voters while keeping faith with liberal metropolitan voters?
2: Well, they do largely what Scott Morrison did at the last election, have sensible economic policies, um, have um, basically a pro-Australian foreign policy, not a foreign policy that uh, appears to uh, placate a section of the world or a group of other countries, but a foreign policy that is based predominantly on the Australian national interest. Mm. I think Scott Morrison has done that very well. I think if he continues to do that, then his appeal uh, to enough of that segment of the electorate will endure.
1: In the 1996 (laughs) campaign, um, writing about it, uh, the New York Times Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist Thomas Friedman, he wrote a book called The Lexus and the Olive Tree, and he (laughs) claims that you believe that Keating had embraced too much economic reform, too much free trade, and that it meant, quote, Australia's most cherished companies were being bought up by global corporations based abroad and owned by foreigners. Thomas Freeman went on to say Howard charged that Australians were losing their national icons, indeed their very sovereignty and identity, to the global marketplace.
2: Well, it's palpable. It was palpable nonsense. <laughs> Of Thomas Friedman, who I I know and like a lot, uh, to have said that because I, to say that I thought Keating embraced uh, too much economic reform is a bit rich, given that a lot of reforms uh, he could only embrace because I supported him from opposition. And and the very in the very last budget of the Keating government, I've never forgotten it. Kim Beasley, who was then finance minister, rang me in the afternoon of the budget in '95, and he said, John. Uh, do your lot still support the final privatisation of the Commonwealth Bank? I said, of course. He said, well, uh, I hope it continues because we'll need your support to get it through the Senate. It's in the budget tonight. And, I mean, that was the final illustration to me uh, of how dependent the Labor Party had become on our support to bring about reforms now that they still continue, understandably, to boast about. As
1: your critics at the Financial Review, uh, they said that you went soft on free trade. You did did put a freeze on uh, tariff cuts on textiles, clothing and footwear. This is the Financial Review. It means that short-term populism under John Howard has been allowed to defeat the long-term national interest.
2: Well, you have to take a long view about those things and that particular decision they didn't like. And uh, I can understand why the Fin Review that, that was really the... You know, in the vanguard of the anti-tariff argument in Australia, I can understand why they said that then, but uh, if you look at the long view, take the long view, uh, we were a low-tariff government. And very importantly, when Hawke proposed reducing tariffs when he was Prime Minister, instead of opposing that reduction... John Hewson and others in the Liberal Party, John Hewson was leader then, argued that he should go further. He he did not take, to his credit, Hewson did not take an opportunistic view. And, and, And that ought to be remembered because if the Labor Party, the Labor Party's decision to reduce tariffs was a courageous decision. It was, in my view, the most courageous economic decision the Labor Party took in government. But it was greatly aided by the fact that we didn't
1: oppose it, we supported it. It is interesting because if you look at the United States and America, we are talking about Brexit and Trump and how, you know, globalization, technological change, many people believe has helped explain why so many working class folks have sort of been the forgotten people. We don't really have that problem in this country, certainly not to that extent.
2: No, we we don't have that to the same extent. And this has got a lot to do with the point I made earlier. Mm. Um, We have found the sweet spot as a nation when it comes to government intervention. We intervene sufficiently to protect the really vulnerable, whereas in Europe there's over-intervention and some of that intervention is impeding commerce and hiring and so forth. But in America, the safety net is not as strong. And uh, there's a harshness in the American welfare system under both the Democrats and the Republicans that Australians would not accept. And that's very important. And it's very relevant for social cohesion.
1: My guest is John Howard and you're on Radio National with me, Tom Switzer. Now let's address the prominent social and environmental issues you opposed in power, but which have now become the political mainstream, including in Scott Morrison's Liberal Party, the Aboriginal apology.
2: Well, I had reasons for that, and I, I don't retract. Uh, it was a very uh, vexed issue, but uh, I didn't think one generation could apologise for the claimed misdeeds of an earlier generation. Uh, when you say you're sorry to somebody about an event, it doesn't mean that you assume responsibility for it. And there were, there were other reasons, but that has now passed, uh, and, and, and the government of the day gave the apology. I don't know the apology of itself. Uh, uh, has greatly improved conditions for indigenous people, although uh, many indigenous people who had doubts about its value at the time uh, are glad it's occurred and I respect that and you know, i've noticed I once you give it an apology well you don't, the, the idea of that you retrace your steps is ridiculous.
1: What about your uh, refusal to uh, ratify the Kyoto Climate Accords? Uh, that was widely seen as one of the reasons why you lost in 2007. The Paris Climate Accords now seems like a wholly written Australian politics.
2: Well, I refused to ratify the Kyoto Protocol, which is a bit different from, from the Paris Climate Accords. I, I had good reasons for that. I was worried about its potential impact on the competitiveness of Australian industries. And I commissioned a very detailed analysis of the arguments for and against ratification in the months leading up to the 2007 election. and On the basis of that analysis, I concluded that we should stick to our policy. Now, if it contributed to our defeat, then that's the nature of the democratic process. I think it probably did. On the face of it, it seemed like a bit of a magic bullet. Kevin Rudd said, I'll uh, ratify the Kyoto Protocol, cheers, all around, and but it didn't really have any great impact.
1: No. Well, there's still no nationwide price on carbon, though you did support an emissions trading yeah, yeah, scheme I, in 2007. I supported
2: an emissions trading system, and, and we developed a, a framework for it in consultation with industry, and it was based on a an expectation that there would be a worldwide embrace uh, of an emissions trading system. but. Of course, that's all now history, and and that history will record that the greatest own goal in the climate change debate in Australia was the decision of the Australian Greens to vote against uh, Rudd's proposal, which was a case of the perfect being the enemy of the good as far as they were concerned. Indeed, in my
1: radio national colleague, Philip Adams, writing the lead article in, of all places, the Spectator Australia magazine, which I had edited in 2010, he said, just as only Nixon could go to China... Only Howard could have decarbonised the economy by waltzing the ETS through Parliament. Fair point.
2: Oh, well, uh, strange source given his other <laughs> remarks about me. Strange <laughs> source of praise. But anyway, uh, 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 any old commentator in a storm.
1: <laughs> a same-sex marriage. You're a strong supporter of traditional marriage, mm. but it's now the law of the land uh, in a resounding postal vote in 2017.
2: Well, I accept it. I'm a, I'm a Democrat, small d. Uh, I had a view on that. I don't regret that view, I argued it. Uh, and uh, But the public, in a very, quite imperfect plebiscite, it should have been a proper plebiscite, but a proper plebiscite would not have yielded a different result. Um, but I accept that. The important thing now is to make absolutely certain that uh, independent and religious schools uh, are not in any way impeded from teaching their faith, not only in relation to those matters, but a lot of others. Now. I think it's important, if we believe in freedom of choice and education, uh, to protect the choice that's been made by something like 34% of the Australian electorate.
1: Well, it is interesting how many metropolitan liberal electorates, including your old seat Mm. of Benelong, they voted for same-sex marriage, Mm. whereas many traditional and ethnically mixed Labor seats voted against it.
2: That is very interesting.
1: A bit like the Republican in and a way 99. Well, in the
2: Republic, nine. for, that's true. Yeah. All of the inner urban electorates, Liberal or Labor, voted yes, including my own. But by taking Sydney as, a, as an example, by the time they'd got to Borgham Hills and Cronulla on the Republic, they'd seen good sense.
1: Now, this week in a presentation to Family Voice Australia, you've called for, quote, people in authority to more actively oppose woke culture that is trying to alter society in Australia. Tell us more.
2: Well, when you hear examples of people wanting to alter the language and remove references to mothers, fathers, brothers, mm. sisters, well, like they, us a few years yeah, ago, yeah, well, that is just palpable yeah. nonsense. And I would just like to hear every time something like that is proposed, I'd like to hear a you know a person in authority, both sides of politics, say that defies common sense, it defies nature, uh, and we ought to denounce it. That's, well,
1: where are those political figures?
2: Well, there's a lot of them around, and I just hope that they um, get their voices on those things.
1: Now, the defenders of cancel culture, not that they would call it cancel culture, but they would say attitudes have changed and that marginalised groups are starting to gain equal footing in society. What's wrong with that view?
2: Well, that view is fine, provided it doesn't uh, spill over into altering language that um, the great majority of the Australian people are comfortable with. Uh, years ago, I coined a phrase called minority fundamentalism. In fundamentalism, in any political or religious belief is is looked down upon. And the idea that because you might have two, three percent of a population having a particular view on something, that the language that is they feel utterly comfortable with, utterly acceptable, uh, should be imposed on the rest is absurd. And uh, I think common sense members of that small minority would accept that. It's very much a question here of, of getting a common sense balance. One of the great things about Australian society is we've always found a sense of balance about our identity and about our past. When we look back on the history of this country, sure, we owe a lot to the Brits. They, they gave us the rule of law. They gave us parliamentary democracy, a free media. But we, and we took those, but we didn't take class distinction. Uh, we didn't take uh, class warfare. We rejected that. We regarded that as, as alien to our character and our nature. Now, we're a bit very good on that. And we have a balance between public and private. One of the things that has helped Australia handle the pandemic better than most other countries is that there's been a seamless cooperation between the public and private sectors in health. Now, this is something you don't find in the United States you don't find in parts of Europe. We have a great sense of balance. I was talking about it early in relation to social welfare and keeping a sane balance when it comes to protecting the legitimate sensitivities of minority groups but making sure that that doesn't uh, uh, spill over into altering the language with which for generations we have felt comfortable. Now, that's common sense. I think most Australians accept that.
1: My guess is John Howard. Uh, talking about the COVID pandemic, uh, it obviously means extraordinary circumstances, but how worried are you that the size and the scope of government has increased so dramatically under a Liberal government?
2: Well, I thought what the government did was necessary and it was a view I privately expressed uh, when, when asked to both the Treasurer and the Prime Minister. It has expanded, but it was necessary and it will contract. Uh, there has to be an end date for... The emergency measures, but thus far the evidence is that not only have we been remarkably successful in containing the virus, I mean, our comparison nation like Britain, the, the death rate per head in Britain is 35 times what it is in Australia. Now, that's a remarkable mm. achievement. Mm. I mean, I, I don't say that happily, I mm. feel sorry for the Brits, but the truth is that we have been very successful. Part of the reason is the fiscal stimulus. And I think the Prime Minister and the Treasurer have both been very courageous and very uh, steadfast on that. You've
1: said that economic reform is, quote, like competing in a never-ending foot race. You know you will never reach the finishing line, but you dare not stop because your competitors will surge past you. Do you see any evidence that either side of politics is committed to the kind of economic reforms uh, that'll really help the economy rebound and fire up entrepreneurial energy and drive investment for tomorrow's prosperity?
2: Well, right at the moment economic reform is not at the top of the list. Economic recovery is at the top of the list um, and uh, we'll have to wait and see but I I remain of that view. The pressing economic reforms of 20 or 30 years ago were greater than perhaps people think they are now. Mm. There was a lot of as it were low hanging fruit you still had a regulated labour market. Sadly we deregulated a lot of it and now it's been re-regulated again uh, by successive Labor governments and largely that re-regulation has been left in place with some exceptions. Same thing with the tax system, same thing with tariffs, but it nonetheless remains the case that you can never go to sleep on economic reform and and, uh, I would hope to see the cudgels of economic reform taken up again when circumstances are more conducive to it.
1: My guest is John Howard, and we're marking the 25th anniversary of his government's election. Let's talk about international affairs. September, of course, marks the 20th anniversary of the September 11 terror attacks. Now, the US forces are still engaged in Afghanistan. Now, by most accounts, Afghanistan and indeed Iraq remain failed states. Were those interventions really worth it in hindsight?
2: Oh, certainly. In the case of Afghanistan, the objective was to make sure that a country that had been a haven for the terrorists would never again be a haven for the terrorists. And I think that mission has largely been accomplished, although you can never be certain. It has been a long military involvement. It always is. Afghanistan has a long history of of devouring invading forces. Uh, But when you throw back to September, 2001, the clear overwhelming evidence was that Al Qaeda was given harbour and succour from Afghanistan and indeed uh, in cooperation with elements from Pakistan as well. So it was a perfectly justified military operation and a very successful one.
1: But do you think still that democracy is an export commodity to that part of the world?
2: Well, that wasn't the objective at the time.
1: Yeah, but you and President Bush and Prime Minister Blair did talk that language at various stages.
2: Well, more in general terms, later on, touching on Iraq, but Afghanistan, I remember Afghanistan very clearly. And I remember... Of course being in Washington at the time of the attack and making it clear that we would stand with the Americans in retaliation. And when they decided to go into Afghanistan it was it was to take out Al Qaeda. It wasn't to impose democracy. That that came later on and as often is the case, there's a certain mission creep once you've inserted yourself into another country.
1: How serious do you think the American crisis is? I mean, if you think about the challenges, they are daunting. We have a pandemic that's killed 500,000 Americans. It's the greatest economic crisis since the Great Depression. You've got widespread racial, cultural tensions. Are you an optimist or a pessimist about America?
2: Well, I remain an optimist about America. Look, it does have challenges, but I'm old enough to vividly remember the 1960s. And if anybody thinks that the present crisis in America is worse than it was in the 1960s, I think of 1968, mm. Lyndon Johnson bows out because of all sorts of pressure, particularly over Vietnam. You have the assassination of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Mm. You have large areas of cities being burnt to the ground. Uh, the, the division in America in the 1960s was monumental and superimposed on that, of course, was enormous social and cultural change, uh, which occurred during that decade. So. I think America has has big challenges. I think the handling of the pandemic by the former president was very bad. It probably contributed more than anything else.
1: And the state state governors as well. And
2: state governors, Mm. yes. But in the end, people in a federation, even when states are very strong, they still look to the bloke at the top. And I think his handling of that was appalling. Uh, It really was. Uh, As somebody who believes he did a number of very good things and aspects of his foreign policy uh, were ones that I supported, but uh, his handling of the pandemic was terrible.
1: China, our relationship boomed during your tenure and as a result, our economy soared. Now, in retrospect, given that China is clearly converting its economic might into strategic might, have we helped feed the beast?
2: I don't believe we have. I mean, you could perhaps single out a this or that statement or this or that speech, but the change in China has been in China. The two leaders that I dealt with, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, were vastly different characters from Xi Jinping. They were both authoritarian communist dictators, but they wanted good relations with the rest of the world, particularly Jiang Zemin, who was personally very attracted to Western culture. Western music, Western movies. And, and I remember him chairing the 2001 APEC meeting just after the terrorist attack. The APEC meeting was in Shanghai. He delivered his speech in English. He conducted the whole proceedings in English and he was very solicitous towards the United States. He didn't say, we want to embrace democracy. And, and and there was no traffic in Shanghai at the time, which was a sign of a, a country that sort of was willing to call the shots on who could drive their cars at <laughs> yeah. the time when, when you had foreign visitors. But the fact is that the mindset of China's leadership then was very different. And, and, and this is a huge challenge for the Morrison government.
1: Uh, it's, it's probably the worst state of relations since before Whitlam, correct?
2: Oh, well, the, the whole world is very different because we're dealing with a vastly stronger China.
1: Okay, but how do you how do, how do our leaders rebuild trust with the regime? We're often told by the Bob Cars, the Jeff Rabies, the James Lawrensons, the Paul Keatings that our leaders need to rebuild trust with the Chinese Communist Party. How do we do that well, well, with a regime can, that wants well, us well, to kowtow to well, it?
2: Well, to start with, we didn't take away the trust in the first place. So the starting point to rebuilding a relationship that you want to rebuild is to understand why it's fractured. And the reason why it's fractured is that there's a changed attitude and assertiveness. Now, we have to avoid uh, any gratuitous injury to the relationship, but equally we have to stand up for Australian values. And it's very important to understand that Australian domestic attitudes towards China have changed. 10, 15 years ago, people were a lot warmer towards Mm -hmm. China than they are now in Australia. Now China is seen as an aggressive, assertive country. Its behavior in the South China Sea has been poor, quite indefensible. There's a, a belief that there is an attempt to infiltrate in institutions and the foreign interference legislation, which was sponsored by Malcolm Turnbull when he was prime minister and Continue to be supported by Scott Morrison. Bipartisan. And, and, and has bipartisan support. So uh, it, it, it is a huge foreign policy challenge, but there's no magic bullet. And the idea that comes from uh, the usual suspects, uh, who, who you named, that there's some magic diplomatic mm-hmm. bullet uh, that Australia can fire and all will be well, that completely misunderstands the more aggressive, assertive attitude of the Chinese leadership.
1: Finally, John Howard, accomplishments, achievements, failures, regrets. Uh, Scott Prasser, who's an historian of the Liberal Party, he says your greatest achievement was that you did not, as John Moore suggested, just fade away after you lost the leadership. You kept on. According to Prasser, your second greatest achievement, you kept Labor out and you kept on keeping Labor out. You saved us from Peacock and Houston and Downer and Costello. This is Scott Prasser. However... Prasser says howard 's greatest failing he let Kevin Rudd in
2: <laughs> well that's a fair criticism so that I did lose to Kevin rudd uh, i and 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 you know I accept the blame for that i, I did I did so on the night um, I think um you know I had my successes and failures. I think the greatest mistake I ever made as Prime Minister was allowed the Pakistani army to talk me into bowling and, <laughs> and on the mountains of Kashmir. That was, that was a huge failure. I just
1: wish we could play that footage on Radio National. <laughs> that was a shocker.
0: <laughs> Terrible.
1: But there's an old saying, the time to go is when everyone tells you to stay. In 2006, a lot of people told you to stay. That would have been a good time to go.
0: Well,
2: you, with the benefit of hindsight, yes, but I, I took the decision to stay in, through because that was the overwhelmingly majority view inside the parliamentary party. And um, I obviously, uh, the Australian public decided they wanted a change. I think they would have voted the government out, uh, no matter who was the leader, but you can never tell of that. They, Gordon Brown replaced Tony Blair. It didn't save him mm. at the 2010 election in Britain. You can speculate about those things, but the truth is, in the end, Uh, I accepted the verdict of the Australian public, uh, unlike uh, the former President uh, Donald Trump, (laughs) whose greatest failure Mm. uh, was his unwillingness to accept the verdict of his fellow
1: countrymen and women. As George H.W. Bush put it on the night of his election loss to Bill Clinton, we respect the majesty of the democratic system. Well, that is right. John Howard, always a great pleasure to have you on Radio National. Great pleasure, Tom, for me. Well, that's it for this week's show with John Howard, 25 years since his landslide election victory. This is Tom Switzer on ABC's Radio National. Hope you can tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.